This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. Photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR podcast, White Lies. My name is Emily St. John Mandel, and my novel is called Sea of Tranquility. Inspired by New York City in February of 2020, Emily St. John Mandel's newest book, Sea of Tranquility, weaves together multiple storylines and timelines. Moving from 1912 to the year 2401, the book imagines a world experiencing the fear and loneliness of a pandemic, but also one that is captivated by art. I recently spoke with Emily St. John Mandel about Sea of Tranquility, which was just released in paperback. I'm Beth Golay. From KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network, this is Marginalia. I feel like everything I want to talk about today has the potential of being a spoiler. So maybe we should start with a description of the book. Can you give one to our listeners that might help me with what areas or topics to avoid? Um, Absolutely. This is a hard book to describe because... I wrote it during 2020 in New York City when, like, to be candid, we were all kind of insane. You know, the pandemic was bad that year in New York. It was it was quite horrific. So I wrote a novel with a time-traveling detective and moon colonies. The novel starts on Vancouver Island, which is where I'm from, in 1912. And then we move forward in time in increments until we get to a moon colony in the year 2401. It's about time. It's about the experience of living in a pandemic because I did write it during COVID. And broadly speaking, it's about what we value and what matters, you know, and the choices that we have to make toward that. Have you found with Sea of Tranquility that people are afraid to interview you for fear of asking (laughs) an idiotic question (laughs) that might end up in your next book? I was reading, I read somewhere else in an article, maybe in the New York Times or something, that most of the events that show up in the chapters titled The Last Book Tour on Earth came from your own experience. Is that right? That is right. Yeah. I had an epic tour in the service of a previous novel, Station Eleven. That that was kind of a breakout book for me. It was the book that completely changed my career. A lot of invitations came in, and I just said yes to all of them because it felt like this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So I ended up doing 127 events in seven countries over 14 months, which was as insane as it sounded. To compound the insanity, I got pregnant somewhere in there. So I was on the road (laughs) till I was seven months pregnant. It was kind of absurd. And, you know, this is a little bit delicate to express because going out on the road in the service of a book is such an incredible privilege. I love it. I really love traveling and meeting people and talking to people on stage and you know signing their books it's really fun it feels like such a privilege i'm going to say that 99% of the interactions i have with readers are wonderful you know it's you just go away with a great feeling if you do 127 events on a given book tour that 1% does add up <laughs> so <laughs> what i found is that you know for all those amazing experiences there were some very strange interactions you know creepy drivers sexist questions on stage just like general insanity and shenanigans and i kind of wanted to write about that because it was so strange i keep a journal so i had a verbatim record and 
Yeah. So, you know, a few months before I started really working on Sea of Tranquility in earnest, I'd started working on fragments of prose. I wasn't really sure what I was going to do about it, what, what, what I was going to do with them, rather, if they'd be the basis for a book or maybe an essay that I'd never publish, or maybe I'd just get it out of my system and never think about it again. These fragments were about an author on tour. And I fictionalized the author to some extent. You know, her home life was quite different from mine. But all of the interactions that she has on tour in those fragments and then in Sea of Tranquility are completely autobiographical. So people did actually ask me those questions. And I did actually sign a book once that an Emily St. John Mandel imposter had already signed. (laughs) Oh, my word. Yeah. Yeah. It's all real. Oh, wow. And so the author, the fictionalized author in the book, it's Olive Llewellyn. And Mm -hmm. Her book was very much like your Station Eleven book. It was about a pandemic, and then we had this pandemic, and and she kept getting, you know, she was very well versed in knowledge about pandemics. But there was one point in the book when one of your characters was told to read a highlighted passage of her book. And I love how you captured the experience, describing it as disorienting, leaping into the middle of a book he hadn't read. And I guess I want to ask about writing the book within the book. Because we're only shown a small, like, highlighted section, but your character, Olive Llewellyn, lectured about it often during her last book tour on Earth. I'm wondering how much of that book did you have to write, either in in physical or digital form, or if only in your mind? Did you know what that book was about? Um, Absolutely not. I have no idea what that book's about. (laughs) No, all I knew is that it had a pandemic in it. I just wrote the fragments that are there in the middle of the book. Although, actually... After Sea of Tranquility was completely finalized and, you know, the drafts were into the proofreader and had gone to press, my publishers asked if I'd consider writing a bonus chapter from that book within the book to go in a special edition for independent bookstores, which I am a huge fan of independent bookstores. They really championed my work when nobody else did. And they're just wonderful spaces. You know, I love visiting them in every city. So, yeah, so I said yes to that. And I did end up writing... Yeah, a full chapter that was kind of from that book within a book. But I really know nothing about that book (laughs) beyond that. (laughs) Do your characters stay with you after you finish a book? Because Vincent is one of your characters from The Glass Hotel. And I didn't remember this as I read it, but Jonathan Alkaitis was also in The Lola Quartet. I was reading a piece by Katie Waldman in The New Yorker, and she described the reworking of characters from book to book as, quote unquote, chance and reinvention. So when you explore characters who have been in past books from different perspectives in another work, do they surprise you? Not necessarily, but it's more that it's fun because all of my books are completely standalone volumes. You certainly don't have to have read one to understand another. But but yeah, to your point, I do become attached to characters. With Sea of Tranquility, I realized really early on that I wanted to write a time travel novel because I'd always kind of wanted to. And when the pandemic hit, I just felt like, you know what, life is horrible. I'm just going to write whatever I want, just see what happens. So, you know, I went with the time traveling detective, which meant I had to choose the timelines. A timeline that I'm personally obsessed with is February 2020 in New York City. And, you know, it speaks actually to your previous question about that book within a book where the recurring line is, we knew what was coming. 
And that was us in New York in February 2020. We knew what was coming. We have three international airports. We realized that this pandemic was pouring into the city by the hour, but we didn't quite believe it because it seemed crazy that there'd be a pandemic. You know, it's like, it was this kind of mass failure of imagination that fascinates me. So when I decided to write a time travel book, I knew that month was going to be one of the timelines. And then I realized I had all these characters from The Glass Hotel, which I had just published that came out in March 2020, all these characters who were very plausibly in New York City that month. And it was such a pleasure to spend more time with them and bring them back. You know, sometimes in a book, I don't get to spend as much time with a character as I'd like to because velocity is a core value of mine as a writer. I really want my books to sing, to move fast with nothing extraneous. And that means that I can't spend a ton of time in the Glass Hotel with, say, Morella, who's Vincent's best friend in that book. She's an interesting character, but she's secondary. I'm not going deep into backstory. So in a situation like that, you know, it's it's fun to go back to that character and just spend more time with her, as I did in Sea of Tranquility. And there is a certain pleasure in linking books together. Alcatus Alrakaitis is a very minor character in the Lola Quartet. He's just kind of mentioned in passing. But he'd stayed with me because his crime was based on the Madoff crime, which continues to fascinate me. So yeah, it was interesting to just to just bring him back and think about that character more fully. There were several instances in the book when characters noted that they couldn't place an accent. And to me, the brilliance behind this is that the accent could not be placed because it was not based on location, but instead on a moment in time. Can you talk to me about this idea that accents evolve over time? Yeah, sure. I think my accent is very strange. <laughs> For example, I think that, um, you know, I'm from Canada originally, but I've lived in New York City since my early 20s. The feedback I've gotten over the years is that Canadians think I sound American, but Americans don't think I sound like them. So, you know, you can fall through the cracks sometimes. So, yeah, you know, I was partly talking about that kind of thing, but also the character um, Gaspari in Sea of Tranquility, our time-traveling detective, he's not actually great at his job. <laughs> you know, he really tries, but he's just not the most competent individual you're ever going to encounter. And I liked the idea that... You know, although he was just barely competent enough to be sent out into the field, there were areas of his job that he just kind of struggled with, and accents were one of them. You know, he's he's really trying to blend in. When he's talking to Edwin in the year 1912, he's really trying for a British accent when he speaks to him <laughs> to try to make him trust him. I don't know about you, but I absolutely cannot fake a British accent. It's just way out of my realm of expertise. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I uh, I liked that idea that there are parts of his job that are really hard and that he can't quite do. Can you talk to me about your writing process? Because you have woven together intricate storylines with points of time. And I guess I'm wondering, do you plot it all out before you begin writing, knowing when you're going to reveal various plot points along the way? Or is it more of a, uh, let's see where the narrative takes us kind of strategy? Yeah, generally more the latter. You know, certainly with my first five novels through the Glass Hotel, it was a matter of just kind of start writing and see what happens. Sea of Tranquility was a little bit different because I had an idea for the structure going in, which I'd never had before. One of my very favorite novels is Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell. And anybody who's read both that novel and Sea of Tranquility will recognize the structure there. 
I was always fascinated by the way that book moved forward and then backward in time in this very kind of precise, symmetrical way. So I tried to replicate that in Sea of Tranquility. I have to say it made the writing a lot easier, you know, knowing what the structure was going in. My usual writing process, though, is I'll just start with a scene or an idea. So with Station Eleven, the idea was, what if an actor were to die of a heart attack in the fourth act of King Lear? And like, that's immediately dramatic. And it immediately suggests more characters. My thought was, well, if an actor collapses on stage, somebody is going to run up there and try to save him. So that gives me Jeevan in Station Eleven. And then I'd recently seen a production of Lear that used child actresses on stage when I, when I wrote that section. So I borrowed that staging. And then all of a sudden I had these little girls on stage and like might one of them carry the narrative forward. So yeah, I usually just start with a scene and then that turns into a chapter. And then I kind of flail around for a year or two <laughs> until I have an incredibly messy first draft. And all of the interconnectedness in the book any character development, anything that's good comes out for me in round upon round upon round of fairly obsessive revision. And for me, that's the fun part. You know, for me, the hardest part is writing the first draft. And then once I have that block of raw material, it's really fun to just start the process of refining it and trying to find the book. I guess this question might tie in, it might not, because revision might come before you have any editorial feedback at all. But I was reading in your notes and acknowledgments, and you thanked your editors, Jennifer Jackson at Knopf in New York City, Sophie Jonathan at Picador in London, and Jennifer Lambert at HarperCollins Canada in Toronto. And we actually just spoke with Jenny Jackson about her novel, Pineapple Street. And <laughs> Pineapple she, Street, yeah. She said, one of the things she said was she was so surprised that it took her 20 years to realize that when she asks authors for edits and they're reluctant, it's not because they don't, you know, they don't want to do the edit. It's because they might not be in the same creative space they were in when they wrote the first draft or the first effort. And um, I thought that was interesting. But I guess my question is more of a behind the scenes question. You have three different editors from three different houses in three mm -hmm. different countries. Are there three different versions of this book out there? God, no, that would make my head explode. <laughs> yeah, that's a really unusual situation that I've got. And the way that came about was, so I published my first three novels with a very small press. And then I switched to a bigger publishing house for Station Eleven. I recognized that it was a somewhat more commercial book. And it just seemed like a good moment to try to drive my career forward a little bit. So the book sold to Knopf in the U.S., and uh, a big part of why I went with Knopf was Jenny Jackson. We had this phone call where she talked about her ideas for the book, and I just knew it would be in really good hands. So, you know, so then I had Jenny Jackson at Knopf. Then the book went to auction in Canada, and I went with HarperCollins and Jennifer Lambert. And then, you know, HarperCollins was like, well, we've made an investment here. Like, we would also like to have editorial feedback. I was like, okay, two editors. That's great. You know, they seem aligned. I'd had phone calls with both. So I knew they weren't suggesting, like, opposite ideas for Station Eleven. Then the book sold in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing. Um, you know, Picador wanted some editorial input on this book that they just bought. I was like, okay, we're drawing the line at three. You know, I, I can't have more than three. <laughs> um, and, you know, it was uh, it was this funny thing where I was kind of scared going in that it would turn into this nightmarish editing by committee scenario. But I have to say, 
working with those three editors on these last three books, Station Eleven, The Glass Hotel, and then Sea of Tranquility, has been pretty extraordinary. They're all brilliant editors individually. And then when they combine forces, just getting three sets of very intelligent notes that always make my book better, um, it's it's a pretty lucky position to be in. And yeah, you know, I think it's just, it's been really fortunate, I have to say, that so far their sensibilities have aligned on on all three books. I don't know what I'll do if I ever get that email that's like, you know, Sophie thinks we should do A, but Jennifer and Jennifer think we should do B. Like, that's going to be a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll jump off that bridge when I come to it. Um, yeah, so far it's been great. Do you pay attention to the Tournament of Books? I do. The <laughs> Tournament of Books is pretty rough, I'm going to say, if you're in it. <laughs> but, um, but I'm not the demographic. It's meant for readers, and it's really fun to follow as a reader. I can't imagine that you'll take me up on this, but do you want to, you know, talk any smack? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. It's not being recorded. <laughs> It's not my first rodeo. <laughs> that was Emily St. John Mandel, author of the book Sea of Tranquility, which was published by Vintage. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Stasser and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producer is Haley Krausen. And our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia. And for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay. <laughs>